What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Hillary Clinton wants to abolish it, believe me. She wants to abolish our Second Amendment. I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. Other presidents did not call, did write letters, and some presidents didn't do anything. Many people have come out and said, I'm right. You really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Hello and welcome to Fallacious Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings coming from the orange presidential face hole to explain logical fallacies. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Mark. A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad or invalid arguments. And the logical fallacy we're looking at this week is the appeal to flattery, also known as the appeal to vanity, apple polishing and argumentum ad superbium. Trump, obviously, flattery and vanity is a big thing for Trump. Yeah. But usually it's going in the other direction. It's it's him expecting his kind of cabinet members to, to sit around the table and, and treat him like their dear leader. Well, and the rest of and, the world to do the well, same. Well, yes, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but flattery coming from Trump to other people happens as part of this fallacy in a very specific way. It's really right. only when he wants something from them. Right. It's only yeah. to try and convince them that actually what they should be doing is what he wants. And yeah. our first example is from a tweet that he sent in July 2019 when ASAP Rocky was imprisoned in Sweden after a, a, a kind of altercation. And he tweeted, just spoke to Kanye West about his friend ASAP Rocky's incarceration. I will be calling the very talented Prime Minister of Sweden to see what we can do about helping ASAP Rocky. So many people would like to see this quickly resolved. So very he, talented. Yeah. very talented Prime Minister of Sweden. Yeah. yeah. Now, as this kind of rolled on a bit and, and ASAP Rocky didn't immediately get released after this bit of flattery, he turned less nice <laughs> right? And, and started saying about how, you know, it was very disappointing that the Prime Minister wasn't doing any more than more. And it was, you know, America does lots for Sweden and doesn't seem to work in the other direction, which is a weird kind of foreshadowing of what he said to the Ukrainian. Uh, Prime Minister, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah. So at, at the beginning, when he thought it would kind of grease the wheels, uh, polish the apple, he yeah, I, um, yeah. he was calling the the Prime Minister very talented, and yeah, that's basically this fantasy. Is it is it's not sincere flattery. It's not sincere praise or um, saying what you actually like about someone. It is entirely to to try and get them to see you more pleasantly and do what you want them to do. Right. That's really what I kind of. I actually, I think I find myself doing that a lot when I'm trying to um, get a bargain on eBay. When you end up and you kind of do all this flattery stuff in order to um, sneak in an outrageously low bid, <laughs> or uh, you know, when, when you're making an offer and you kind of go, "Oh, it's a lovely thing," and you've kept, you've obviously looked after it so well, blah 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 blah. blah. You know, you've described it, and I'm really interested in the story behind it. Would you take one pound fifty for it? Mm. You know, yeah. inst- instead of the listed forty eight thousand dollars, yeah, and then, and, and you're using it essentially in in the place of an argument. You're not actually yeah. making any logical 
steps to say why you should have it, or in this case, why Rocky should be released. Yeah. But um, it's just instead of doing that, you just go for the flattery. Yeah, and I think actually he's also kind of he's talking about the Prime Minister of Sweden and his talent in the same <laughs> breath as Kanye West and AC yeah. Rocky, who are um, you know equally talented Nordic politicians. <laughs> you know, just like just like he's an equally talented urban rapper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it was yeah. kind of weird that he got involved with this really it was it was during the period where kanye was uh, you know the, the kind of crazy where he was interested in trump as opposed right. to his usual kind of crazy and um and kim kardashian was going into the white house and getting trump to listen to her about people who should be released from prison and yeah. and things like that and and he just seemed to be kind of caught up in that celebrity yeah interest yeah. world thing which was very much, I think, what what essentially Kim and Kanye were doing to Trump was was yeah. the flattery thing yeah. to say, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You, we need you, you're brilliant, we need you to come and help us with you're this just, thing that you're, we want to try. You're and get a done. rock star, yeah, yeah. You know, you're a rock star, um, and we're you're kind of our kind of people. It's a bit like the the Cool Britannia thing in the nineties when all the pop stars went to visit um, Tony Blair in Number Ten. So like Oasis and Blur and Paul Weller and that would all yeah. just turn turn up at number ten, and he absolutely loved it. And you know he thought he was finally he got to hang out with the guitarist that he'd been emulating for years and years, and they felt like they were influencing policy. And I don't know that that's true. I think they've all just turned out to be slightly right of centre. <laughs> After I suspect Morrissey turned up at one point. And, and said, "Yeah, that Thatch, that Thatcher, she was great." So, mm, yeah. yeah. So it is. It really is about the the kind of vanity that they that they get out of it, rather than anything else. And um, our second example from Trump is uh, at one of his rallies, and it's aimed at his followers, his supporters. You're the smartest. They don't like to say that about. Hey, I went to great colleges. You went to great schools or colleges. You people are successful as hell. They like to try and demean always by the world, this and that. Let me tell you, we're winning. You're smarter. You're better looking. You're sharper. And they call themselves elite. But if they're elite, then we're the super elite. So, let's see, they've kind of gone, gone from. You know, yeah, you went to colleges. They went to college, but you've been to college. You know, they've got good jobs. Yeah. You've got good jobs. You're also sharper. You're better looking. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know. Yeah. I know it's just kind of a given. But yeah. um, the, his, him saying, you know, I went to, to great schools and colleges. You went to great colleges. 29% of his base are college graduates, of his, of his supporters, compared to like 66% of Hillary's supporters. So, yeah, you definitely can't say to those people... You all went. You went to great colleges. You're really smart and well educated and and brilliant. It's just, uh, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and he's and he's also trying to do the same. The thing. I'm just. I'm just like you. I went to good schools. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah because you bought your way in. Yeah. So he's he's kind of doing the the flattery of them so that he they will count him as one of them and vote for him basically do what do what he wants them to do and yeah so he and, just and he vote. does that really weird thing 
where he claims that the Democrats call themselves elite, mm. which is not how that works at all. The, no. the elite moniker is given to them as a kind of as a negative thing yeah. by yeah. their enemies, as a, as saying they are, term. you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, East yeah. Coast elites and so yep. on. Yep. Um, and so Trump is weirdly claiming that they call themselves elites, but they're not elite. We're more elite than they are. They are, yeah. We're so he's claiming it yeah. as, a, yeah. as a thing that's good. Yeah. Well, that was the thing that was bandied around ahead of the last election that the uh, Corbyn and the Corbynistas, or the, the kind of the champagne socialists, were all called metropolitan liberal elites and were out of touch with the rest of the country. And this was um, leveled at them by the metropolitan liberal elite in the Tory yeah. party, who for sure have never, you know, stepped foot outside of Westminster. Lots of them, you know, so their, their thing is very London focused. That was, well, in fact, that's the text of my dissertation, the other side of this thing. And now is the time I think for Marx's British politics. Corner. Yeah, so this is about, um, my first clip is where Boris won. This is from his election-winning speech the day after he won the last election in December last year, mainly because people that never normally vote for the Metropolitan Liberal Elite, the, uh, the Tories, don't normally vote for them, voted for them. and Surely they're uh, the Metropolitan Conservative Elite. Aha, very good. So you did there, yeah. Yeah, the Metropolitan Liberal Democrat elite. Yes, the uh, yeah with a little L. So Boris aware that lots of people, basically, he was aware that his campaign had won. His campaign of of having no policies other than get Brexit done was a successful thing because he tapped into all the people that were disenchanted, uh, sufficiently disenchanted to have voted leave in the referendum in 2016 and then were increasingly disenchanted that we hadn't left the European Union um, by 2019, glossing over the fact that they were disenchanted sufficient to vote leave because of seven years up till then of um, Tory austerity and London-centric policies. So they disenfranchised them sufficient to vote leave and then capitalised on their disgruntlement with their disenfranchisement by saying, yes, we will manage to leave now, having also successfully de deflected all of the blame for the austerity and the London-centric um, you know, denuding of industry in the northern parts of London, uh, northern parts of England, having successfully deflected all of that onto Europe so that people said, well, it's all Europe's fault. So having won, Boris then flattered the hell out of the voters by saying this. I have a message to all those who voted for us yesterday, especially uh, those who voted uh, for us Conservatives, uh, One Nation Conservatives, for the first time. You may only have lent us your vote, and you may not think of yourself as a natural Tory. And you may intend to return to Labour next time round. And if that is the case, I am humbled that you have put your trust in me and that you have put your trust in us. And I and we will never take your support for granted. 
And I will make it... And we, I will make it my mission to work night and day, flat out, to prove you right in voting for me this time and to earn your support in the future. And I say to you that in this election, your voice has been heard and about time to. See, I don't know why they're clapping there, because mm. who he's addressing are basically the Tory party faithful um, in that room, and they're all going, yeah, great, yes, yeah, we, you know, you let, I'm humbled by the fact that you lent us your vote, and, you know, we will do all we can to um, to live up to your expectations. Of course they won't. Um, and, you know, he said, your voice has finally been heard in about time too, only insofar as it's got him into power. He is notorious for um, setting stuff up so that people trust him merely to further his own career. Or there's a great article in The, uh, in the Guardian and it says unreliability is Johnson's business model, as is attested by everyone whose misplaced trust has been incinerated to fuel the engine of his of his ambition. And he's, we've known that he's done that when he became the mayor of London and did all sorts of um, claimed all sorts of uh, great things from uh, his mayorship, which were based on the previous mayors stuff the ken livingstone stuff so the whole of the olympics boris claimed as his own he did none of that um the things that he then went on to do like building a new bridge over the thames which never came to pass but he spent 53 million p uh, 53 million pounds convincing people that he was the guy to do this he was held hauled up in front of various select committees as the mayor to find out what had gone on with um, housing schemes uh, around the, the Docklands and around the Olympic Park that didn't come to pass and lots of money exchanged hands. So there's people trusting him left, right and centre. And he's saying, yes, thank you for that. It's, he successfully got people to vote for him on the basis of being ever so humble. He's prostrating himself in front of these people that have never voted Tory in their lives these people that he's disenfranchised, made uh, disgruntled with politicians and then voted for him. And he's just going to drop them as, he, you know, because he has got where he wants, which is to be king of the world. So he's he, he's done. He's got a large enough majority in uh, Parliament to get through anything. He can ignore all of those promises and nobody will stop him. Nobody will... Uh, hold into account because his enormous majority will allow him to put through any policies that will ignore those. So people will kind of stick their hand up and go, yeah, but what about the, the Northern powerhouse that all voted for Tories uh, and got you into office? Nobody's going to say that because they're all in and they're all happy and they're all on the gravy train. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. It's, it's no I'm, better I'm idea, not, is it? I'm not hundred okay. percent convinced that it's, <laughs> okay. that it's an appeal to flattery. I think I I don't I didn't see anywhere in there that he was kind of trying to get something out because he's already essentially mm. he's had their vote. He's got what yeah. he wanted. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I was trying to find an example from the speech he gave just before the election, but he kind of tones it down. He's not mm. he doesn't actually say um, I don't know why, because he could have promised all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, he doesn't say you're uh, you're yeah. great, 
you know, you're, you know, you'll be, uh, yeah, I will do everything that you need. So this is kind of after the fact. This is what he, if he'd have said this before the election, then he would have yeah. been appealing to them to get something out of them. What he's doing is more, maybe he's kind of assuaging some sort of collective guilt on the part of the top. No, what am I saying? No, <laughs> he's he's not. So, all right. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's kind of because it's after the fact. He's kind yeah. of not trying yeah, to get anything got, out of them. He's already got Yeah. And he's like, just almost exactly saying, you know, I, I don't even really expect you to vote for Labour for yeah, yeah, exactly. Tories next yeah. time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not doing anything you want. Yeah. All right, then. So the second example, then, is... Um, so this is a couple of instances. So Boris in, I can't remember, last summer during the Extinction Rebellion uh, climate activist uh, demonstrations that were going on in London, Boris was trying to get to the offices of the Daily Telegraph where Charles Moore was launching um, the latest in his Margaret Thatcher biography series and uh, he was held up from getting there in time and was disparaging to the audience of Daily Telegraph grandees uh, about the uh, climate activists. And he's, he's so what we're going to hear now is Boris. And then it's followed by Boris's dad, Stanley Johnson, who is talking to the very activists that he was disparaging about. My own team didn't want me to come to this event tonight because they said that there were some uncooperative crusties and protesters of all kinds uh, littering the, the road. When we are waylaid in the streets, as I'm sure we will be, by importunate, nose-ringed, dreadlocked, climate change protesters, and the best thing possible for the education of the denizens of those heaving, hemp-smelling bivouacs that now litter Trafalgar Square and, uh, and, and Hyde Park and the rest of, of London, the best thing for them would be to stop blocking the traffic and buy a copy of Charles's magnificent book. I wear that badge with pride. Yeah. I, hey. It's one of the nicest things which I've been said about me for a long time. A non-cooperative crusty. Absolutely superb. Do they taste good? That's my thought. I think they do. Look, on this point, on this point of language, You've got to understand that sometimes you need to get a point across. Now, at this particular point was actually Boris saying that you know, he'd been a bit late for Charles Moore's book launch. You know, and he works for the Telegraph. Charles Moore works for the Telegraph. You don't expect people who work for the Telegraph to be late for each other's book launches. Anyway, but the real point, Boris said, the real point, Boris said, was he absolutely supported the objective. That he absolutely didn't say that. That and no, the that wasn't so what I, we heard. No, so um, not only do his private office uh, warn him against these things, his own bloody family is kind of apologising on behalf of him for using such language. So again, Boris, a bit like Trump, is a failed, awful stand-up comic. You know, all that all that Eton and Cambridge education just has given him a large dictionary of insults that you can string together in a very but at least it is a large way. dictionary of insults instead of yes yeah. trump's 
saying tired saying old mean, hacky mean phrases and nasty yeah that's <laughs> at least it's imaginative We're calling just, them uncooperative crusties and hemp grasping at straws you know, there. it's yeah. yeah it's yeah. just as appalling but it's entertaining <laughs> it's so. yeah so i think i think in order to uh, get the uncooperative crusties to be a little more cooperative and all and almost kind of later on the the thing is he in that speech uh stanley johnson equates um the climate activism with tory policy and boris johnson actually in the same speech the, there's a bit more of it that uh, came before what that what he was saying he he says thatcher was got there before greta thunberg did so they're kind of saying yeah do, do we we're not in, he's not insulting you because you are really uh at the heart of conservative policy he's <laughs> they're trying to get them on side by by a bit like they call themselves the elite well we must be the super elite he's called you a uncooperative crusty well i would wear that badge with pride um and yeah. to get you on to, to get them on side basically and to diffuse the the situation because boris doesn't give a shit about the and he does get a cheer at that Thatcher. point doesn't he Stan? yeah yeah when he says that so yeah, yeah it seems to be working yeah. And then, and then he joins in. He goes, "Hey!" As well, that's yeah. him going, "Hey!" And you think <laughs> that that's the worst yeah. thing to do, isn't it? When people cheer, you don't cheer along with them because <laughs> that just makes you, yeah, you appear that you're not really listening. You're way ahead trying to get to the. You go, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah!" Cheer there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Then I realized it was a fallacy. But then I thought of all the time that I'd seen it in the wild. I was beguiled. I'd seen them in the wild, in the wild. But I've seen the wild. If you just look long enough, you'll see them in the wild. They're out there if you look, or you can read them in Jim's book. Fallacy in the wild. Fallacy in the wild. Hey, hey. There you go. Gloria Gaynor there with I Will Survive. I was kind of inspired by that one because I saw that she'd posted a short video on TikTok of herself washing her hands uh, to counteract coronavirus to the and singing the chorus of I Will Survive because that's long enough to wash your hands by. Yeah, that was seconds. excellent. I absolutely loved yeah. that video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And I was, and there is. I will survive by washing my hands and not uh -huh. doing anything else. Yeah. yeah. So, in the fallacy in the wild, we like to talk about the fallacy of the week from a non-political perspective. And this week, our first example is from an old L'Oreal ad. I use the most expensive hair color in the world, preference by L'Oreal. It's not that I care about money; it's that I care about my hair. It's not just the color. I expect great color. What's worth more to me is the way my hair feels. Smooth and silky, but with body. Feels good against my neck. 
Actually, I don't mind spending more for L'Oreal because I'm worth it. There you go, because you're worth it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because so this is where the because I'm worth it, which later turned into because you're worth you're it. You're worth it. Started. Which is even more flattery. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and it was it was because I'm worth it for quite a while. And then one of the, the spokesmodels that they had doing their ads decided that she didn't feel comfortable saying I'm because I'm worth mm. it and would rather yeah. say because you're worth it. And they said, Yeah, that works. And then it became that became their slogan. And yeah, it absolutely is. This is the appeal to flattery is saying, you know, I mean, L'Oreal isn't one of the more expensive brands anymore. But when it when it was, it was saying, yes, you, you should have that. So you should buy this, not because, you know, it's great or because it'll make your hair look nice, but yeah, because but you're, you're worth, worth it. it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> because well, you're another... such a great person, you deserve this. You deserve this. And why wouldn't you? You know, yeah. And if you don't have it, are you saying that you're not worth it? Yeah, yeah. What was the name of the male cologne, like denim or something like that, when it was, Old and spice. it was, was it, was it? Old Spice. <laughs> I, don't know, but, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, because <laughs> the strap line was for the man who doesn't have to try too hard. Okay. So, so that was the thing, you know, when you high kind karate, of go, probably, it was, was it like <laughs> karate? Yeah, yeah, it was like, yeah, it was... <laughs> <laughs> but it's that yeah they are it's all those implied things in there you know it's it's yeah. that are you are you saying that you're you're the one man that does have to really try whereas if you if you just use this you would yeah you'd be worth it and there is there's something completely narcissistic about i'm going to use this because i'm worth it you go well uh-huh. good for you so um our second example is uh one which is an example of how you can use it to distract someone if they are going down a path that you don't want to go down using a factory. Right. And this is from an episode of South Park called Chin Pokemon, where there's a craze, obviously based on Pokemon, and it yeah. is these Japanese toys that have an interesting malfunction. <laughs> we understand you have big concern about our fine product. Well, yes. Do you mind telling me what the hell this is about? The American government lies to you. Join the fight for Japanese supremacy of the world. More to come. Well, uh, that is so strange. I do not know how this could happen, but rest assured I will make sure it does not happen again. Well, now, come on. I don't think that that quite satisfies my... You are American? Yes. Oh, you must have very big penis. Excuse me? I was just asking you what you're up to with these toys. Nothing. We are very simple people with very small penis. Mr. Horse penis is especially small. <laughs> so small. We cannot achieve much with so small penis. But you, Americans, wow, penis so big. So big penis. Well, I, I guess it is a pretty good size. Minasan, kite, kite. This man has a very big penis. What an an immense penis. (laughs) Well, it certainly was nice meeting you, folk. I just wanted to bring that little malfunction to your attention. Bye-bye now. Goodbye. Thank you for stopping by with your gargantuan penis. (laughs) (laughs) Works every time. So, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So the the makers of the Chin Pokemon successfully distract the the American toy um, toy shop owner uh, from... Complaining about their toy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a bit like that apocryphal tale that uh, when um, soldiers fighting wherever, American soldiers got sent condoms 
um, uh, they were all marked extra large. Mm. Just to kind of, you know, as flattery of, uh, yeah, you've got to wear a condom. And actually, you know, we know you need these things and we're going to put extra large on them. So our final example in Fallacy in the Wild this week is a a book by H.G. Wells, but not one of his kind of sci-fi or fantasy books. This was uh, this came out of a, a situation where he was visited by a friend of his, Jerome K. Jerome, who uh-huh. um, was a poet, wrote uh, Three Men in a Boat. Yep. And he had some kind of toy soldiers. And, and after dinner, Jerome started kind of playing just absentmindedly almost with the, with the soldiers. And um, H.G. Wells joined in and they had a bit of a battle with the toy soldiers and <laughs> decided that it might be fun if they make up some rules for these yeah. war games. And yeah. so the first book of rules for playing with toy soldiers was written. It was by H.G. Wells. It was called Little Wars. Um, but the full title was Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150 and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. Nice. I'm, okay. I'm there sure that this was just a horribly misogynistic <laughs> way of doing it for H.G. Wells, but it represents uh, another form of this fantasy, which is where you suggest that something is for a particular group of yeah. people, a particularly elite group or a, a, a yeah. particularly clever or a particularly handsome group, and therefore... If you consider yourself or would like to consider yourself part of that group, then this is a thing for you. Yeah, nice. So by yeah, saying yeah. by saying this book is for the more intelligent sort of girl, yeah. then that that's who is going to pick up the book as the ones who consider themselves to be that or, or like to see themselves that way. It's like something for this is for the discerning gentleman. Absolutely, yeah. That yeah. kind of thing, yeah. So you you immediately... Well, that, yeah, that's why you buy stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Oh my God, we've been having yeah. this time. Because yeah. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you look at that and think, well, you know, yeah, I'm not the more intelligent one, so I wouldn't enjoy yeah, that. Yeah, I won't do that's that. That's no, just not how most people that. think. So. I'm not a discerning gentleman, so I'm not going to buy that particular <laughs> shade of beard tr- trimming <laughs> dye or something, <laughs> whatever. I'm racking my brains to, to find out where that comes from. The discerning gentleman It's probably a whiskey or... Something like that. Well, it's like, like well, it's almost a bit like probably the best lager in the world, mm. or uh, you know, that, yeah, all of those things where yeah, there's a there's lot of a, this, a lot of appeal to flattery and vanity mm, in in advertising. Mm, you know, yeah, so much of it is based on creating this situation where where an aspirational person or or aspirational yeah. situation that you would like to see yourself in, or um, is is kind of person who uses this product and therefore yeah well even if it's not um even if it's not stated in the strap line yeah. it's always Absolutely. you know people with fabulous hair driving open top cars uh, in the sunshine and you think what is this advertising and it turns out to be pile cream or you know <laughs> f- funeral um, plans or something like that <laughs> but there's this, just this thing and you go i want to be like that <laughs> you know and if i buy that yeah, well, there's that line that from could be me. Um, yeah. yeah, that line in Rolling Stone's Satisfaction. Um, he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. <laughs> that that like which is straight out of an advert. So yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna play fake news, folks. I love the game. It's a great game. I understand the game as well as anybody, as well as anybody. 
Yes, it's time for fake news, the game where I read out three Trump quotes, two of which are real and one I made up, and Mark has to figure out which one is fake news. Because week after week, Jim, you outfox me is because you're absolutely brilliant at writing these things. So out of the goodness and magnanimity <laughs> of your uh, genius brain, you could just, whatever happens this week, I could win. Well, we'll see. Um, so <laughs> the, the you may actually have a, a good chance this week because oh, okay. the setting that these were said in has yeah. been on a lot of different programs and on the news okay. and, and these kinds of quotes have been so not around the normal obscure so this is, places that yeah no, well yeah the like yeah. press conferences and things like that but yeah, <laughs> no, this, this, has, this has been widely um put out because this is when trump visited the cdc uh, yeah, last yeah. week just over a week ago to talk yeah. uh, to them about their coronavirus preparations and he talked to the press while he was there and it was a fairly horrific um speech that well he it wasn't even it was he mostly answered questions but he obviously didn't know anything and and, no. and the people that were around him were just complete sycophants and it was amazing so yeah. uh he said a number of different things uh, and mm-hmm. this is statement number one mostly about himself <laughs> yeah. yeah right i he said i like this stuff i really get it people are surprised that i understand it Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Maybe I have a natural ability. Maybe I should have done that instead of running for president. That's the same old line that he always runs, isn't it? (laughs) Everyone said, how come you're just such a genius? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, A lot of people have said, no one, not one of them have (laughs) said, how come you don't know anything? All of them have said, you know nothing about this. Just leave it to us. Stop fucking it up by getting involved. Maybe I have a natural yeah. ability. More likely, one of them said, how do you not fall down more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Just from doing one thing. I mean, Gerald Ford couldn't chew gum and walk. You know, Trump can't even think and speak. Yeah. So, every one statement of them. Every number one two. Of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> statement right. number two. Right. Over the last long period of time, when people have the flu, you have an average of 36,000 people dying. I never heard those numbers. I would have been shocked. I would have said, does anybody die from the flu? I didn't know people died from the flu. 36,000 people died. How, much, how come you know so much about this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. After the last long period of time, what, just after the First World War. Which over over the last long period of time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, when people have so. the flu. Okay. <laughs> I never heard those numbers. Uh, Right. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Statement number three. Yeah. We're going to have a vaccine and we're really, and really we're going to have it done very quickly. And the whole world is relying on us. It's going to be a beautiful vaccine. Of course, it takes time to get it approved and make sure it's safe, but we're going to see what we can do about speeding that up. Mm Okay. Well, they, the, the, the troubles are all so bloody convincingly right. I think the first one, every one of these doctors said how much. That's kind of typical. So it's probably true. Uh, last look, I don't know. How many people died? 36,000. Okay, we're going to have a vaccine. It'll be a beautiful vaccine. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, I think 
are, despite the beautiful vaccine, I think number three is the one that you made up. Okay, which of the other two are you more convinced by? I'm (laughs) neither (laughs) of them. Uh, Okay, okay. I can hear him saying number one. So I've got to say number one. So number one is... Yeah, yeah. Real. I like this stuff. I really get it. People are surprised that I understand. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Maybe I have a natural ability. Maybe I should have done that instead of running for president. You should have done anything instead of running for president. Yeah. What? Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. No, the trouble is it kind of reminds me of... Well, it, uh, it reminds me of Boris. Boris made a speech yesterday about, well, he had a kind of press conference thing and he was flanked by two properly expert medical people and he just looked like a fucking idiot because yeah. he was just saying that and he had no idea. You think, okay, for all your words, you can't actually string a sentence together. You don't know anything really. And uh, he did have the good grace to just hand over to the experts. He didn't answer some of the questions; just sent them straight to them. And, but and and you get this. It's yeah. It's not Trump this. has to has, has to, to be best, the best, best at everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then make up stuff and say, "Oh yeah, every single one of these doctors said how much you know so much." They don't. They didn't. They didn't do that. No. As like one of them, maybe like as a joke. <laughs> When yeah. he said, so, oh, oh, so is it yeah, like so, a cold? Oh, how yeah. do you know so much about this? Yeah. Or so this is like a this is like a glove, only it's made of rubber, and you like you put it on your hand like that, yeah, and it's oh okay, so it's like a condom but with five bits on it, yeah, yeah. How do you know so much how, how about, you, this? <laughs> about this? Yeah. Well, when I was in the army, you weren't in the army. <laughs> we got sent condoms that were extra large. No, you didn't. I didn't. This is this is the guy who a week before was sitting around a table in the in the White House with actual doctors and yeah. saying things like, "So, could we just use like the flu vaccine for this?" And and all of the doctors were sitting there thinking, "Fucking course we can't use the flu vaccine. Yeah. It's not yeah. the flu. It's not the flu." And then all of those doctors were thinking, how come he knows so little about this? How do you know the amount you know about this? How How is it possible to know that much about this? this long? Yeah, Yeah. to have lived lived your life this long in this country and been exposed to as much television as you've been and yet know so little (laughs) about so much. Yeah. Yeah. So... Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so you also think that number two? Is I real. I do definitely want it to be real. Yeah. And number two. Yeah. Is yeah. Real. Oh Over my god! Long period of time when people have the flu, you have an average of thirty-six thousand people dying. I never heard those numbers. I would I would have been shocked. I would have said, "Does anybody die from the flu?" I didn't know people died from the flu. 36,000 people died. How do you know so much about this? <laughs> what? Literally what? in the same visit, he is saying, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know this thing that basically everyone no. knows. Also, I know everything there the is pl- to know about this stuff. Yeah, I've got a natural ability. <sighs> well, you're natural in a kind of Shakespearean sense of natural being <laughs> idiot. 
Yeah. And then, uh, but there's no, he has no sense. I think he's got no long-term memory. So it's just, he's going, oh yeah, did I say something then? I have no idea what it was. Anyway, I'm just expressing what everybody else is expressing. 36,000, really? 36,000? Yeah, everyone, yeah, everyone knows that. (laughs) Yeah, more people than have died so far in the US from coronavirus have died of the flu already last year. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I sounded a bit like Jonathan Parker. (laughs) (laughs) All of which means that... You have the got it right this, this week. Oh, oh, okay. Aha! So, Aha! yes, statement number three was indeed fake news. Oh, because he did say something about vaccine. That's why I was a bit bit doubtful about it. Yeah. It sounds so, it sounds so <laughs> normal and ordinary. I mean, he's repeatedly vaccine. said that, that oh, yes, that we're working on a vaccine. It's going to be very yeah. quick. It'll be, yeah, and everyone else is going, no, it's going to be a year. Yeah. A year to 18 months. Um and and he said um, basically, I think in, in that meeting where he was saying, "Could we use the flu vaccine?" He he said something like, um, "You know, could we get it done in two months?" And they said, "No, it'll be a year." And he said, "Oh, yeah. I, I like I prefer two months, like that matters." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's not you're not doing a deal. We're not kind no. of holding out for <laughs> you know eighteen months. It's going to take eighteen months. Three of those are getting it tested on humans, so it would yeah. not, we don't kill people. Said, so, "Oh well, we'll just speed that bit up." What? It isn't <sighs> bureaucracy. It isn't just government interference slowing the thing down. It's the fact that we're not Star Trek, and we can't just go, "Oh yeah, I'll just reconfigure that on the screen and then put it through the replicator." Can't do that. It doesn't exist. For sure, I've seen it on the telly. I know so much about this stuff. Oh, dear. So that means that you're now on 18 out of 45, which is Yay. 40%. Oh, you've got I've ba- never up, been back up into the fours. Yeah, oh, you, you right. were. You I've made been it the, the heady heights of, yeah, of below kind of 40, average. <laughs> 42%, I think, was your peak. Whoa. But, yeah, you're getting back up there. Yeah. So, Mark, have you ever been in an escape room? No, I haven't. But I did once design one for my son's 10th birthday. And I had to make up all the characters and then sort of work out the plot. And they all arrived and they played the thing. And then they had to work out this puzzle. And it took forever. But it was great (laughs) fun. And, uh, yeah, and I've not actually been to an escape room. So my kids and I, we love escape rooms. We did our first one last summer, and uh, it was fantastic. And then we did another one beginning of this year. It's such a lot of fun, and it's really kind of intense puzzle-solving, clue-finding, thinking. You You have to think laterally and logically, and it's, like, creative. And you have to really keep an open mind as well, because my daughter, who's 11 came up with a thing and said, maybe this is what we need to do. And I was like, that's not what we need to do. And of course it was what we needed to do. Of course it was. (laughs) Ah, Brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So we love escape rooms. But the thing is, they are really expensive because when you get your family all together and go and do it, you're paying, you know, a lot of money per person and you have to go somewhere and find somewhere to do it. But rather than spending a lot of money on each of your family members and taking them to a place, you can get escape rooms that you get sent to you 
And yeah. we have a sponsor yep. this week who yeah, is a company called Crate Joy, and they do yep. subscription boxes. Uh, one of the subscription boxes that they do is called Escape the Crate. Excellent. It's an escape room in your house. They send oh, you brilliant. a different escape room that you can do every two months, and yep. you can play it with your family, um, many people as you like, really. There you go. But you yeah, can yeah. enjoy all of the puzzle solving and clue finding and cipher solving and all of that stuff. Yeah. How do we get these? If you want to have some fun in your house with an escape room, then you can go to fallaciousTrump.com slash escape. And if you put in the discount code FTRUMP when you order, uh, you have to subscribe for more than one box to get a discount. You'll get 20% right. off if wow. you subscribe by the 22nd of March and put in FTRUMP in the uh, discount code when you check out. So hurry up and do it. FallaciousTrump.com slash escape. Yes, it's time for the part of the show that this week, at least, is called Simon Chadwick is Not a Logical Fallacy, because this week we've partnered with the Greenleaf Book Group to bring mm -hmm. you an interview with Simon Chadwick, the author of the new book For the People, A Citizen's Manifesto to Shaping Our Nation's Future. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, why don't you start off by just giving us a little bit of your background? Well, as you can tell, I've got a North Carolinian accent, <laughs> and uh, no, I'm actually, uh, I was born in South Africa and educated in the UK. I've worked in um, Africa, Italy, the UK, the USA. Uh, so I've, I've got quite a, a sort of background of different types of country, different sort of cultures. My father was a very prominent anti-apartheid activist in the 70s and 80s in South Africa until we as a family were exiled in 1982 subsequent to his arrest. And so I've actually experienced a totalitarian government up close and personal. Educationally, I have a master's from Oxford in philosophy, politics, and economics, which has been an interest of mine, even though my career has really been in running companies and for the last 15 years, uh, my own uh, consulting company um, here in the United States. So I wrote this book essentially because when Trump was elected, a lot of my family that are still in the UK were saying, come home, come home. Uh, the guy's a maniac. And <laughs> I instead, can understand that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> instead, I thought, hell no, you know, I'm going to be part of the resistance. And I'd been here for 20-something years on a green card, and basically I decided to get citizenship so that I could have a say, and then to write this book, because I felt somebody needed to give a, um, a logical and perhaps broader view of not only the dangers that we face, but how we could get out of it and how we could reestablish this country as uh, something to which it aspired to in the beginning. The book is called A Citizen's Manifesto, and it kind of it works its way towards a manifesto at the end, doesn't it? And it, and there's a lot in there explaining the concepts of, of um, democratic libertarianism. Can you kind of, in a, in a nutshell, give us <laughs> the, what that is, democratic libertarianism? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's really interesting, actually, when you think about the way in which we talk about politics. We think about left and right. 
What we don't think about so often is authoritarian versus libertarian. And being a management consultant, you know, I can't live without a two by two. So if you plot on a two by two the the various forms of government in this world, um, both in recent history and today, you usually find that most governments are sitting in the top right hand corner. Uh, that is, they are right wing or center right, and pretty much in the authoritarian camp. That is true whether it's uh, Boris Johnson or Tony Blair. It's true whether it's um, you know, Obama or uh, George W. Bush. Um, most democracies, most Western democracies today are in that top right-hand corner. Uh, in the bottom right-hand corner, which is right-wing libertarianism, that's what I call right-wing you know, sort of fantasy land. It's over here in the United States, it's what's promised in elections, i.e. the government will get out of your hair and you know, it won't cost you very much, but it, it's never delivered. Top left, obviously, is the failed communist states, uh, you know, USSR, Venezuela, places like that. But very rarely do people actually look at the bottom left quadrant, which is what I call democratic libertarianism. But this is where, you know, you have a left or left center approach to politics, but with, a, you know, an agreement that, yeah, we're going to set up a framework for you. Uh, to be successful, to live your life, to uh, be free of fear. But we're not going to be a nanny state. We're not going to pre prescribe all the time. And I think if you look at governments around the world, you can see that you know many of the Scandinavian governments, perhaps sometimes the Dutch government, the Portuguese government, and certainly New Zealand right now, fall into that category. And one of the most interesting things is that when you look at those countries, many of them, not all, but many of them are amongst the richest countries in the world, and they're also amongst the happiest countries in the world. So that's what dem democratic libertarianism, that's the definition of it, if you like. Um, but the book started off really posing the question, you know, we've got a really horrible state of affairs in this country and maybe even in the uk as well right now um you know how can we you know what is government about what is what should it be about and it really started from there and i use maslow's hierarchy to try and answer the question so how does how does maslow's hierarchy fit into that kind of concept of of government then well if you're this side of the Atlantic and you go back and look at the Constitution and at the Declaration of Independence, you see a couple of really interesting things. Number one, the Declaration of Independence was the first document uh, of its type ever, maybe since Greek times and even then, to use the word happiness, the pursuit of happiness in its raison d'etre. Uh, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, sure, the, the, the definition of happiness uh, back then in 1776 was probably slightly different than it is now. Uh, it may have con connoted uh, 
sereneness or maybe societal calm. But nonetheless, you know, look around and you're not going to find it very often in, in a, a declaration like that. Liberty, libertas in Latin, it means broadly freedom, but in its most strict sense, it means freedom from fear, which is really interesting because if you then go across to Maslow's hierarchy, what what is that saying? Well, the top three, top two, top three layers of that are about belonging, love, self-esteem, and self-actualization, which basically means achieving your dreams. And the bottom layers are about security, having a roof over your head, having food on the table, and at higher levels, being able to take care of your family, having a job, being educated, being in good health, and really primarily being free of fear that you uh, you will lose any of this. Uh, and indeed, the Bill of Rights makes that very, very clear. Freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom from search, uh, freedom of speech. So it struck me that this was uh, fascinating in as much as we've moved away from a lot of that uh, over the last few decades and really are moving away from it at a great speed right now. And in doing so, the United States is no longer an exceptional nation. It's actually a very mediocre nation in so many ways. So using that as a lens, I really was interested in, in saying, okay, so what should government be doing? It really should be setting up a framework of security for individuals and society as a whole, from which people can feel they belong in the widest sense, and can actually strive for both self-esteem and achieving their dreams, and that the country itself can do so, because that's really what the country was founded on, was that this was something different. This was something that people could aspire to. And it's part of the, the national conversation always, but it is very rarely these days delivered. You talk in the book about ideology and, and the problems yes. that, that creates, and part of the manifesto is, is abstaining from ideology. Um, how practical do you think that is? How realistic do you think that part of it is? Because I agree with you <laughs> that that would be a mm. great thing, but it seems to me that ideologies are, are so ingrained in a lot of people that that would be an extremely difficult part of the, the process to, to kind of put into effect. I think that is true, um, and in some countries such as the U.S., you know, ideologies have become litmus tests to the extent uh, that you know you get uh, evangelicals, for example, supporting a man who is probably the most immoral um, president that we've had in, in decades, if not centuries, because. They see through him a way of making their ideology stick and forcing it upon others. That being said, there are examples, I think, where ideology is less prevalent. I think we've seen examples where in democracies that are um, highly active, 
highly you know, involving uh, New Zealand is one of these, where it is possible for politicians to take non-ideological uh, decisions and to lead through through moral leadership in many ways uh, to say, no, you know, this isn't about ideology. You know, this is about doing what makes sense and what's what's right. So, yes, there is, you know, ideology, unfortunately, permeates a lot of political life. But I think there are circumstances under which we can reduce that. It's it's such a Rubik's Cube in this country. I mean, for example, the ideology of the right is is completely and utterly run by money. So the role of money in politics has to be looked at very, very, very uh, closely. The degree to which, for example, uh, you vote for or against the NRA on gun control is an ideological litmus test and is is directly linked to how much money you get from the NRA. So, you know, you have to kind of look at what's uh, supporting ideology and supporting an ideological kind of stance and then try to work out how you can mitigate those those influences. The, the NRA and, and gun control is a really interesting example, actually, of um, what I would see as the difficulty of balancing freedoms. If you're talking about trying to give people liberty and freedom from fear, um, there there are some people who would see freedom from fear as the ability to to have guns, as many guns as they like, and and that will stop them from being afraid. Whereas other people's idea of, of freedom from fear would be that that there aren't any guns, or that people you know guns aren't as prevalent as they are. So, how do you balance different people's concepts of their own freedom, where they where those conflict? The interesting thing here is that the Second Amendment was so vaguely written, so convoluted, uh, that depending on where you stand on the um, the ideological spectrum, you can read pretty much whatever you want into it. But in this case, I think, you know, it's like the old Irish uh, joke that, you know, guy comes to a fork in the road and asks an old, old man what direction to take, and he says, well, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. The, the the fact is, we are starting from here. The Second Amendment is a fact. The Supreme Court has um, upheld it. Um, so, okay, that's where we start from. We're not going to get rid of it. Um, thousands of constitutional amendments have been posited over the 200 years of the Republic, and only 25, I think, have ever got through. It's very unlikely that we could ever um, get rid of that. So we just have to say, okay, we start from here. That doesn't mean that we cannot regulate the way in which guns are bought, used, and sold. Uh, and this is where there's a, a huge discrepancy between you know, what the NRA, which is essentially a manu gun manufacturer's association these days, believes and, and what left-wingers believe. But when you come down to the facts, they are horrific. And no government, I think, that really believes in a framework absent of fear 
should be sanguine about these facts. Uh, you know, we have nearly 40,000 gun deaths a year in this country. Uh, that's more than traffic accidents killed. We have 1,000 people killed by the police every year. Yeah, and, and many of those gun deaths, by the way, are suicides, and many of them are accidents in the home, uh, you know, where children have found guns and uh, you know, basically where they shouldn't. So if, if you're saying as a, as a politician that, you know, my job is to, to create a framework where people are not afraid, then there has to be some sort of regulation. There has to be some concerted effort to control that mayhem. And again, it's not easy because it means you have to deal with gang culture. It means that you have to deal with people who believe that they can own AK-47s, that they shouldn't have to register or be controlled in any way, whilst at the same time registering their car and licensing it and passing tests to drive it. But yeah, all of that has to be, be, be dealt with. But nonetheless, and you know, you you cannot, I think, look at this situation and say this is perfectly normal. Unfortunately, after every mass shooting, uh, and in five months, the first five months of last year, there were twenty-two mass shootings in this country. You know, everybody sends out prayers and thoughts and condolences. And nothing gets done. It's getting done at the local level, and that's interesting, but it's not getting done at the federal level, and that's because of money. Local government and local governing entities uh, are something that comes up as well in, in your book. as kind of an example of how government gets out of the way by leaving decisions beyond the kind of framework that they've set up to the smallest possible governing entity. Um, one of the ones mentioned is school boards in, in the manifesto. And, and that made me wonder, in terms of this kind of ideal libertarianism of allowing freedom and allowing those individual groups to make decisions, isn't there a need to decide that on a larger level and to, to regulate that when you have, for example, school boards in Texas and Kansas and places like that saying it's okay or even buying textbooks to... Uh, to teach creationism over evolution, isn't there a need for the government to get involved at that point and uh, at a federal level and say, no, we have to have these standards? I, I believe there is. And I make a distinction in the book between what I believe are social issues that follow moral ideology, abortion being one, which I think really should be brought down to the county level. And, you know, if you want to live in a county that does not allow abortion, fine. But maybe the county next door and the county next to that does allow it. And that means people can, um, even poorer people can have access to it if they need. Uh, where education is concerned, uh, it's, it's not just about curriculum, although I think, you know, you, you hit on a very good point there, but it's about financing. And we're still using the form of financing education that was used in, you know, the days of, the migration to the great uh, wild west you had a town on the prairie that had its schoolhouse and had its school teacher and they needed to be supported and that was supported through property taxes 
Today, we have this same system, which means that essentially, if you're in a poor neighborhood, you are really screwed in terms of the quality of the schools that you have available to you. Whereas if you're in a, a very wealthy neighborhood, you have the best uh, education going. And this this actually results in a grotesque mutation of the property market with people moving between you know their their kids elementary school time uh, they'll be in one neighborhood and then they'll move to another neighborhood and that take you know that really screws with property prices but essentially what it does mean is that there is no um equal right to education in this country and i'm talking primarily secondary education here. Secondary education is a crapshoot and essentially is not going to, it's it's not solving for social mobility. Social mobility in the States is an all-time low right now. So yes, to, to answer your question, there needs to be um, a, a more state-driven, maybe even federally-driven approach to education. Uh, certainly to education funding. And I think where the federal government can come in is to say, look, we need to move away from a property tax-based uh, system, probably more to an income tax-based system. We need to follow the Dutch example of uh, you know, where there are lower uh, social economic class uh, families in a particular neighborhood or maybe immigrant families we actually upweight the funding to their schools to encourage mobility. These are things that, again, they do fall within the democratic libertarian framework because essentially the government is then leveling the playing field and removing the fear of people who otherwise uh, see their kids trapped in the lower structure of society removing that fear and enabling them perhaps to build a better future for their kids. Okay. The book is For the People, The Citizen's Manifesto to Shaping Our Nation's Future. Simon, where can people get the book and where can they find out more about you? Thank you. Yes, the book is available at Amazon, uh, both in the UK and uh, in the US and elsewhere. You can also go to my website, simonchadwick.us, and buy it through that website. Do leave a review, positive or negative whichever way you, you fall. And I'd love to hear from anybody who is up for a respectful conversation as to the merits or demerits of the ideas that I put forward. Excellent. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. It's been a real pleasure. I like the way he kind of sets out the whole thing based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but he kind of touches on libertarianism in, So, we, and we were talking about it earlier, that we thought that uh, it was a very, very thing, a thing about being small government, so you do hardly anything to interfere in uh, the social fabric and you just let everything go to the free market. Um but it's but he's got some thoughts about that. Actually, yeah. there are a things lot of, that government a lot of needs to do. Kind of, yeah, uh, solutions to some of the problems with libertarianism and that, mm. that are inevitable. I think do seem to involve using more 
government regulation than I would have expected, mm. um, given my previous ideas of what libertarianism is. So it was yeah. really interesting to talk to him and to, yeah. to read the book. And, and yeah, and actually, they're kind of they're, and they're the kind of ideas that in in recent times in the UK have been dismissed as socialism and even worse, communism, uh, Stalinism, Leninism. You know, the way off to the to the left, yeah. but they're kind of just the things that enable a uh, a stable and secure society. In yeah, and he does thrive. talk in the book as well about how that kind of socialism word has become mm. such a kind of bête noire of, of mm. the right in America that that they they simply kind of refuse to look at the more democratic uh, libertarian. Um, yeah socialism as opposed to the authoritarian one which is countries like sweden and new zealand and places like that where mm, actually they're mm. doing pretty well yeah no good interview and finally some things we really don't have time to talk about shocking nobody nowhere trump continued to lie about and downplay the coronavirus last week at various points likening it to the flu again suggesting on fox that many people who get it are fine still going to work and even blaming obama saying the Obama administration made a decision on testing that turned out to be very detrimental to what we're doing, and we undid that decision a few days ago. <laughs> Nobody knows what he was talking about. What's he talking about? Yeah. Factcheck.org yeah. reached out to F the FDA, the CDC, and the White House and got no response, and the experts who would speak to them said there was no such decision. Peak mm -hmm. Trump, though, happened during his aforementioned visit to the CDC when he blithely announced that his personal preference would be to leave American citizens on the cruise ship the Diamond Princess because letting them off the ship would make the US infection numbers look worse. Nice. Because surely what you need in a crisis, especially in a health crisis, is trusted, accurate, accessible information. Mm, from the White House? Well, Reuters mm. ran reports from government officials that staffers without high security clearances were excluded from the coronavirus response meetings held by the Department of Health and Human Services that they took place in classified rooms, even the virtual video conference ones. Of course, if the information is classified, then it doesn't get beyond the select bunch who have clearance. And given the bunch who have clearance aren't at all qualified to run the country, let alone deal with a global health crisis, this very possibly slowed down the Trump administration's response. Maybe it's a bit naughty of Reuters to poke the grumpy bear like that by pointing this out, because he's just going to spend a lot of time roaring about how it's fake news that and he's not being inaccurate or opaque and yeah i'm the president rather than out fixing things oh actually yeah that's probably for the best good work reuters at the height of the administration's denial that anything was really wrong large numbers of republicans gathered together in a room at cpac the conservative political action conference mick mulvaney trump's now former chief of staff told conference attendees that the only reason the coronavirus was even in the news was because democrats thought it would bring down the president Days later, when an attendee tested positive for coronavirus, several prominent Republicans announced they were going into self-quarantine for a couple of weeks, including Ted Cruz, Doug Collins and body language expert Paul Gosar, who immediately went insane and tweeted that he'd rather die gloriously in battle than from a virus. The final quarantined representative was noted drunkard and desperate attention seeker Matt Gates, who only a week before had mocked people's concern by wearing a full gas mask on the House floor during the vote on appropriations for combating the virus. 
After Karma caught up to him and smacked him in his oh-so-smackable face, his team announced on Twitter that Congressman Gates had expected COVID-19 to impact Congress given the elevated frequency of travel and human contact and demonstrated his concern last week on the House floor. Uh, <laughs> Democrat Representative Katie Porter reminded CDC Director Robert Redfield probably nothing short of the modern application of the Hippocratic Oath recently when she totted up at the House hearing the cost of getting tested for coronavirus about four grand per household. She then simply asked Redfield, do you want to know who has the coronavirus and who doesn't? Well, yes, he replied. Not just rich people, but everyone who might have the virus. All of America, he replied. But it took her three goes to get Redfield to, quote, commit right now to using the authority that you have vested in you under law that provides in a public health emergency for testing, treatment, exams, isolation without cost. Yes or no. All he had to do was say yes. Porter pointed out he didn't have to do any other work than that. Finally, he relented. And I can't believe that that's the right word even relented in the current crisis and stopped giving thoughts and prayers non-answers and said yes, which, as Porter said, is indeed excellent. Everybody in America hear that? You are eligible to go get tested for coronavirus and have that covered regardless of insurance. There you have it, people. A victory for the 99%. Not to be sneezed at. Katie Porter continues to be an amazing representative and if you want to hear more about how much we think she's great and other stuff she's done uh in episode 28 you can hear all about that in our methodological fallacy so good at numbers yeah (laughs) finally as the number of cases rose exponentially even in the absence of proper testing trump seemed to get the idea that bullshit can only take you so far when people are dying and he addressed the nation on wednesday from the oval office Without acknowledging that maybe this wasn't quite like the flu, he announced that he was putting a 30-day ban on travel from Europe, including on goods and cargo. Despite the fact that this was poorly read aloud from words that had been written down for him and put on a teleprompter presumably more than 30 seconds before he went on TV, what he said wasn't actually what he meant. And Trump himself and various agencies tweeted corrections quickly afterwards. The ban would not in fact cover goods and cargo, just people. And not all people. American citizens were still free to travel from Europe, presumably because citizenship imbues you with some kind of immunity. Also, the ban wouldn't cover all of Europe, only the places which don't contain Trump golf courses. (laughs) So the UK and Ireland are fine. Just hours before this recording, Trump held a press conference in the Rose Garden to declare a national emergency, which will free up billions of dollars to combat the virus and give hospitals significant authority to do whatever they need to to help patients. During the press conference, Trump said, when America is tested, America rises to the occasion. If America actually manages to get tested, that is. Yeah, or they can afford it. Well, they can now on the insurance. Health and finance advisory expert Eric Trump Woke up bright and early, well, 11.30ish on February 28th, and not particularly bright, then tweeted some deeply researched advice to his fiscally-minded followers. Quote, In my opinion, uh-oh, it's a great time to buy stocks or into your 401k. I would be all in. Let's see if I'm right. Well, we didn't have to wait that long to find out. By the end of the same day, the Dow Jones plummeted 350 points. Yeah, that's about 25%. And wrong tool or not, that's a pretty accurate measure of how wrong a tool Eric is. As one person commented, Eric doesn't understand the difference between buy on the dip and buy some dip. 
Needless to say, Eric has implemented his own social distancing by deleting the tweet and blocking a whole bunch of followers. Also, I've just noticed his Twitter banner is a massively faked picture of the massively fake crowd at the inauguration, and every one of them is his friend. Small thing. It's definitely not 25%. Was it not? No, the Dow is like, uh, it was at, on that day at least, it was about 28,000, so 350 points is, uh, it's 1.25%. Oh, well, that doesn't so, sound I don't know what good. you're talking about. No. But um, yeah, it's in subsequent days, it has fallen by thousands of points that like in the next few days uh, fell by, yeah. it fell by uh, a thousand. I think one day it fell by 2000 points and it fell so quickly that the New York Stock Exchange shut down automatically because they hit, they hit a 7% drop, which is a, an, a kind of electronic trigger to stop trading yeah. for 15 minutes so that it doesn't just spiral into nothingness. Wow. And it's the first time that's ever been implemented. Wow. So. That's like hell to on uh-huh. just going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Don, I can't do that. So it's just yeah. kind of going, right, no, I'm just yeah, humans, just I'm not gonna let you do anything else now. I'm just gonna switch it off. Wow. So yeah, not the best day to buy. No. <laughs> or be advised by Eric to buy. So yeah. yeah. Mm. In news which is both good and not coronavirus-related, paedophile judge Roy Moore has resoundingly lost the Alabama GOP Senate primary because he's a garbage person. Moore came a distant fourth in the race for Jeff Sessions' old Senate seat, and in other good news, Sessions also didn't win his seat back, although his race isn't over because he's now in a runoff with the fantastically named Tommy Tuberville. (laughs) He's a... It's not. It's Who not like presumably as a children's TV character exactly, set in a world yeah. of potatoes. Yeah. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or I imagine he's one of those um, those kind of figures that's inflated by air that stand outside parking lots. That's kind of like made of tubes. Yeah, the crazy waving thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tommy Tuber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's him, and he'll turn up at the hustings, and that's all he'll do. And people will think he's a Trump devotee. And he'll still beat Jeff Sessions. And he'll still (laughs) beat Jeff Sessions. Exactly. Yes. Over here, Boris has appeared as a presser for the first time since calling an emergency Cobra meeting about two weeks too late, and after his health minister herself tested positive for coronavirus. And what measures are his government implementing to protect his swathes of new voters? Oh, yeah, and the rest of us. Well, given that we're probably four weeks behind where Italy are now, if we were China, we could build four hospitals in that time. But no, he's not yet implementing anything that might actually prevent the infection curve from skyrocketing, but rather distracting us from the last 10 years of willful underfunding of the health service by perpetuating the damn fool Dunkirk spirit of keep calm and carry on. Go to school. We walk to school during the Blitz. Go to work. Go on the tube. We survive the Luftwaffe, you know. But most importantly, wash your hands whilst whistling God Save the Queen and get to grips with the notion that you might lose some loved ones before their time. Yes, he actually said that. If only someone anyone loved Boris, then would that mean he'd go before his time? Yeah, love him, but don't kiss him, unless you have a new and continuous cough, that is. <laughs> I think probably only one verse of God Save the Queen, you'd need to whistle while washing your hands to get to 20 seconds. That'd probably be fine. Yeah. yeah. 
No one knows the words after the you get past after the first them. verse anyway, no. which isn't an issue no. if you're whistling, admittedly, but still. So, that's all the bad arguments and faulty reasoning we have time for this episode. You can find the show notes at fallaciousTrump.com and if you hear Trump say something stupid and want to ask if it's a fallacy, our contact details are on the contact page. If you think we've used a fallacy ourselves, let us know. And if you've had a good time, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with us and other listeners in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fallaciousTrump. All music is by The Outbursts and was used with permission. So until next time on Fallacious Trump, we'll leave the last word to the Donald. That's right, go home to mommy. Bye. <laughs>